0: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, November 11. I'm joined by Jan Fran, who's fresh from riffing on Q&A with... Prime Ministers, Premiers and Jan Fran.
1: <laughs> well, about a day and a half fresh, but it takes you that long to get over it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Let's have a little listen, actually.
1: Hey, do you know what I reckon would solve this dispute and just make sure that it never happened again? Is if we got rid of the Queen and just yeah. became a Republic.
0: Correct. Can correct. we
1: do That's that? correct. <laughs> Can we do that?
0: Oh, You knew Turnbull would like that, didn't you?
1: <laughs> I did. Look, a lot of people on the panel like that, as it turns out. Yeah, just making some... Some big claims there on Q and A. Can We're we get a republic rid of the Queen? now? By the way, everyone, <laughs> it happened. I made it happen on Monday.
0: Are you excited about the news on the Pfizer vaccine?
1: Oh, mate, isn't everyone?
0: Yeah. Well, um, not Norman Swan so much. We're going to speak to him in a moment. He's um going to pour a little bit of cold water on our excitement. But we also spoke to an American doctor who was actually part of the trial.
2: For me, I needed to take this risk because it's everything that I stand for. It's part of why I'm a doctor. I want to help my community and this was the the best thing I could do to help my community.
0: Yeah, we'll ask all the key questions about the Pfizer vaccine in just a moment. Um, First, let's get to the big news of the day which actually starts with some new detail on this story.
1: The breakthrough COVID-19 vaccine that's proven 90% effective in trials is being fast-tracked.
0: Yeah, there are reports this morning that the Therapeutic Goods Administration here in Australia has classified it as an urgently required drug, sure is, so that it can be assessed as fast as possible.
1: Yeah, Deakin University epidemiologist Professor Catherine Bennett says that if it goes well, we should... I mean, hopefully see it in a few months.
2: The real advantage of this vaccine is that it's an easier one for them to produce and to scale up and to produce in very large numbers. So this could feasibly get to us, you know, by the end of our summer, March, you know, April.
0: And in the US, the top White House advisor on COVID, Dr Anthony Fauci, expects it'll hit the market even sooner in the US. I believe with the impressive nature of the data that that should go through smoothly, that by the time we get into December, we'll be able to have doses available for people who are judged to be at the highest priority.
1: Wow, that escalated quickly because December is just around the corner. And I feel like a few days ago, we didn't have a vaccine. And now we might have one, well, the states (laughs) at least might have one coming out in December.
0: Well, Donald Trump might be asking why that news didn't come out um, about a week ago.
1: Look, I'm sure Donald Trump's (laughs) asking a lot of questions right now. It'll be interesting, though, to see how the vaccine is rolled out because authorities have been saying that it's going to uh, be rolled out to vulnerable populations first, the Mm. elderly, healthcare workers. So it actually might end up being a little bit longer before the general population gets it.
0: Yeah, and this vaccine has to be stored at minus 70 degrees as well, which is one thing that makes it difficult to roll out. Um, we actually wrote to Pfizer and asked them for more detail on this release um, yesterday, particularly how they got to that 90% effectiveness figure. Mm. And basically the way it worked was that about 40,000 people took either the vaccine or a placebo. And so far of those 40,000 people, 94 of them got COVID. It turns out that 90% of the people that got COVID. So 90% of that 94 had the placebo, so had nothing. So only 10% of the people that had the vaccine ended up getting COVID. Right. Of the people that got COVID.
1: Sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you.
0: So that's how it works. Um, So yeah, in a moment, we'll go to Dr. Norman Swan from the ABC to hear about his concerns about the vaccine. And there's news on the job seeker payment. Um, it's being extended till March, but at a lower rate.
1: Yeah, from January 1pm, Scott Morrison says that the payment, this is the payment formerly known as New Start, will be $715 for singles instead of $815.
0: We can't stay stuck and neutral in this country. We've got to keep moving forward. Like the emblems on our national crest, the kangaroo and the emu, they only go forward. And that can be the only plan for Australia. Yeah, I'm not sure how taking money away from vulnerable people is going backwards. Certainly, they're the people that Cassandra Goldie's been advocating for. She's from the Australian Council of Social Services.
1: Right now, we've got just one job available for every 12 people who are looking for a job. We have a long, hard road to bring jobs back for people. We need to have an adequate unemployment payment so that people can cover the basics.
0: Yeah, so this has been an interesting debate to follow, Jan. Before COVID, unemployed people only got 550 a fortnight. So and that $40, was called
1: Newstart, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: that was $40 a day. So a very small amount of money to live on. COVID comes in and gets boosted, basically doubled to 1100 but it's slowly getting wound back. Mm. Um, they're taking it to 715 Where will they land? Like, it can't go much lower than 715 surely.
1: Yeah, and the government was under pressure to increase that... Um, $550 originally called start payment for a while uh, because he hadn't really seen any increase in real terms in 20 years. And the PM does not believe that Alan Tudge or Christian Porter have breached the Ministerial Code of Conduct following allegations aired on the ABC's Four Corners program.
0: Yeah, Minister Alan Tudge has apologised over an affair with a staffer in 2017, while Attorney General Christian Porter is considering legal action after being accused of kissing a staff member at a Canberra bar.
1: Yeah, Scott Morrison says that the matters were dealt with at the time and uh, that he won't be taking any disciplinary action.
0: Family breakdown and individual decisions of, of people, and there's also no suggestion here of anything unconsensual, I should stress. These things happen in Australia. They happen in people's lives and people greatly regret them. And they do tremendous damage to people's families and the lives of many others
1: the PM there, and at the same press conference uh, with the PM was Social Services Minister Anne Rushton. Uh, she was asked about what she thought, as a woman in Canberra, what she thought about the culture in Canberra, but we didn't quite get to hear her answer.
3: As a woman in, in the government, uh, your reflections on, on the culture I- inside? as it got better, worse, or no change since the, the bonk ban era?
4: Well, Phil, the only thing yeah, that I can... Sorry,
3: that. <laughs> How this ban is referred to... I think is quite dismissive of the seriousness Yes,
1: that, that was the PM there speaking over uh, his minister, Ann Rushton. That's, <laughs> you know, what might be termed as PM-splaining, perhaps. Um, he did cop some flack online, not surprising, for speaking over Miss Rushton. And it's not a great look, I think, when you're talking about allegations of a toxic work culture in Canberra that might make some women feel uncomfortable. Try yeah. not to speak over your minister when you're talking about that.
0: In a way, it sort of answered Phil Corey's question, didn't it? A little
1: bit, yeah. Unintentionally so.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's a bit of news for Labor as well. After months of criticising his own party's climate policies as being too ambitious, Joel Fitzgibbon has quit the Shadow Cabinet and moved to the backbench.
3: We have a diverse range of membership and we must speak to them all. And I think somehow over the course of the last decade, we forgot that and we lost touch uh, with traditional working people.
1: Yeah. Now, Labor has pledged zero net emissions by 2050. Joel Fitzgibbon is in an interesting position here because he's the member for Hunter. Now, there's a big blue collar base in the Hunter Valley that is in New South Wales, and he suffered a massive 21% swing to One Nation in the last election. So he's really got that electorate on his mind there moving forward.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that this hit breaking point for Fitzgibbon just after the US election because uh, Joe Biden has promised to tank America back into the Paris um, Climate Agreement. He's talking about um, net zero emissions by 2050. So,
1: so in line with Labor there, yeah.
0: Yeah, so that, that means that America is sort of potentially taking a leadership role in this again and and urging stronger action around the world, um, which could lead people in the Labor Party here in Australia to want to sort of come out with a stronger policy heading into the next election, which is exactly what Joel Fitzgibbon doesn't want because the coal miners and power workers in the Hunter Valley might vote him out of his seat. All right, Jam, we'll catch you tomorrow. Annika's jumping in as we ask all the key questions on the Pfizer vaccine. All right, so I'll be going skiing in Japan. Annika Smethurst, you'll be getting uh, married in March. (laughs) The news about the vaccines got a lot of us pretty excited, hasn't it?
4: Yeah, I'm thrilled about this. Look, it's the news we've all been waiting for, isn't it, Tom?
0: Well, we're going to find out. Um, Big news yesterday, the Pfizer vaccine, um, they announced that uh, it was 90% effective and that they could produce 50 million doses by the end of the year and 1.3 billion by the end of next year.
4: So in today's briefing topic, we'll ask Dr. Norman Swan about some of his concerns about what this trial means and whether we could see this rolled out here in Australia.
0: And first, we've also tracked down an American doctor who was part of the trial. Cheryl Racinos, MD, works in Hollywood. Cheryl, how did this trial process actually work for you?
2: Well, it was it was pretty interesting for me because I had applied to both trials that were using RNA as their vaccine candidate and this is the trial that called me back for an appointment. So I registered and my husband registered for the trial and it was you know, completely by luck that we were selected.
4: And Cheryl, do you know whether you got the placebo or the vaccine and If you don't know, do you suspect you got one or the other?
2: So they won't tell us which one we got, but my husband and I both suspect that we got the actual vaccine based on our symptoms after we got the injections.
0: Okay. So what happened after you got the injections?
2: Um, For both of us, we had arm pain in the area where we had the injection. And then for myself, I had um, some pretty severe malaise after the first injection. It was for a couple of days where I just felt really tired and wanted to sleep. But for me, that's acceptable if it prevents me from getting COVID. Um, And we had a second injection three weeks later. And on that second injection, we both, again, had arm pain. And we were both tired, but the, the tired sensation went away after about a day. So it was much faster the second time around.
4: Now, Cheryl, you're a doctor, and it sounds like you're pretty happy with those results. So what would the message to your patients be if this vaccine is proven safe and available? Do you think people should rush out and get it? Is this what we've all been waiting for?
2: Um, In my professional opinion and in my personal opinion, I absolutely want as many people as possible who are willing to get the vaccine to get it. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. I miss everything. I want, you know, everything to be open again. I want kids to go back to school. I mean, I'm in California, and so we're pretty restricted, as we should be. But it would be nice to send my kids back to school. It would be nice to be able to go to the coffee shop or to the mall. But, you know, we have to do it safely, which is why we need this vaccine.
0: Did you end up getting COVID and did you know that the vaccine had a role in that? Did you go out into high-risk scenarios once you'd taken the shots?
2: So I have not um, ever tested positive for COVID. And to my knowledge, because I don't have the lab results from what they've taken during the study since it's blinded, but I've never tested positive for antibodies before the study. And so I, I did not have COVID, but as a physician, I am working directly with patients who do have COVID. I admit patients to the hospital for my group. And so I'm daily being exposed to patients with COVID and I have not gotten it.
0: So you're confident that the vaccine stopped you getting it?
2: Yes, I I am confident. And I still wear my mask because that is appropriate and safe. And I'll continue to wear it even after, you know, everyone is vaccinated until we've decided as a medical community to stop wearing masks. But I also feel much safer knowing I've had the vaccine.
4: Now, Cheryl, some people have, um, I guess, suggested that COVID is just like a bad flu. You've treated patients that
2: have had it. What's it like and how serious is it? So COVID is so very serious. Um, early on in the the virus, I lost my uncle to COVID. So I've known all the way through that this is, you know, very different from the this normal seasonal flu that we get. We have patients that come in and they're gasping for breath, and it doesn't matter how much oxygen we give them. They just can't get that air that they need. They have an air hunger like I've never seen before, and it's something that most people, unless they've seen it, don't understand, but it's, it's traumatic to see patients that we can't save, and early on, it was very scary to have patients coming in that you know, we didn't really have anything for.
0: Cheryl, if this vaccine is the one that helps reopen the world and makes people safe, will you feel like you played an important part in history?
2: Absolutely. I feel like we took a big risk, but I was okay with the risk because we have adult children that need to go back to college and I have a child in high school that can't leave the house. And so for me, I needed to take this risk because it's everything that I stand for. It's part of why I'm a doctor. I want to help my community and this was the, the best thing I could do to help my community.
0: Amazing to speak to you, Cheryl. Thank you so much for joining us on the briefing.
2: Well thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Cheryl Racinos from Hollywood. Very excited there. Incredible story, hey Annika, that she actually she knew someone who died from COVID and has been working on the front line.
4: Yeah, has had some extreme exposures and continued working through it. So good for her and her husband that they didn't pick up the virus.
0: Yeah, so let's get deeper into these um, interim trial results with Dr. Norman Swan, he's the host of the ABC's Health Report and the Corona cast. Uh, And as you're about to hear, he has a number of concerns about this announcement. So warning, cold shower alert. Um, Norman, is this the news we've all been waiting for? Might be.
3: (laughs) I hate reading on the parade. Uh, This is a press release. It's not a scientific paper. Uh, It hasn't been evaluated. In my view, it's as much a commercial announcement as it is about public health. Pfizer has not necessarily been a team player in the vaccine development stakes. Uh, the other front runner vaccine manufacturers have shared the same design of their trials so that when the results come out, it's going to be much easier to compare how well these vaccines are performing against each other. Pfizer has not done that. So it might be quite hard to compare how well the Pfizer vaccine has performed compared to the others. It's not at all clear what they mean by 90% effectiveness. Um, It could mean that it's 90% effective in preventing the disease COVID-19, but it's deliberately fudging about whether or not it's, it's effective at preventing the infection. All the vaccines are going to be judged on whether they pre- prevent the COVID-19 disease rather than the infection. And that might sound a little bit odd. And Let me just explain that for a moment. Okay. It's very hard to develop a vaccine for a respiratory virus that prevents the, the virus getting in in the first place. It's just really hard because of the way the immune system works in the nose and the throat. But what the vaccine then is designed to do is once it gets in, it's like having... Uh, an ambush in a war, you let them go over the trenches and then you surround the the invading army to stop them going any further. And that's really what the vaccines are designed to do because if they stop them going any further, then you don't get the disease. And and really that's what counts. I mean, who cares if you get a little bit of a cold if you don't get the disease? Um, So, but it's still not clear whether or not that's what happens here. And safety is a huge issue. I suspect that the other vaccines that are the four and doing their phase three trials know already, just like Pfizer, that their vaccines work. But they haven't done a press release and announcement. Pfizer has. It doesn't take very many people in a trial. You've seen here, what is it, 90-odd patients to know whether it works. But you need 43,000 or more to know whether it's safe. And then you need to give enough time after the last dose to make sure that you're not getting any short term side effects beyond the the immunization itself. So there's lots of factors here. Let's hope they're right, let's hope it all pans out. But if they get emergency use authorization before the other vaccines, um, before all the data are in and properly examined, uh, we could be facing a problem.
0: Okay, can you interpret the numbers in this press release for us? It said um, in these interim results that of this stage three trial where around 39,000 participants got um, both doses of either the vaccine or the placebo, only 94 got COVID. So how does that translate to this 90% effectiveness result?
3: The, the kindest way of, of, of interpreting it is that in the placebo group, 90 people got infected with COVID-19 and in the vaccine group, only nine did. Yeah, That's what I assume they've meant, but it's not clear. That's the problem with press releases.
4: If this is successful, as they seem to claim, what's the stage now? This was a stage three trial. So who has to assess these figures and how likely is it that this could be approved?
3: So it goes to the regulators in each country. Um, so there's one regulator for the European Union. Um, there's one in Australia, et cetera and it goes to the Food and Drug Administration. And they look at the raw data, they look at um, the the side effect profile, they go through all the 40,000 people who've had it, um, and they scrutinize that, at least that's what they should do, and work out whether or not the claims are right, whether there's a proper placebo. They look at all the details there. And then Australia will do their own evaluation of the data as well. And it's, it's very likely that they'll get regulatory approval, but that's the next step. And then once you've got regulatory approval, then you're approved for marketing. In this case, um, with the vaccines, since we've pre-ordered this vaccine, if it's approved in Australia, then the government will pay for it and it will be distributed.
0: How quickly could it be rolled out here in Australia?
3: I don't know, because it will depend on supply and what arrangements have been made for supply. The Oxford vaccine will be rolled out very, very quickly because we're producing it already in CSL in Melbourne, and they will have doses ready to go quite soon. And certainly by the beginning of 2021, we'll have a reasonable stock um, with capacity to produce more than the 30 million doses. Remember, every time you see a figure for these vaccines, you've got to divide by two. There is another problem, by the way, which is that this vaccine has to be stored at minus 80 degrees. This does not make it an easy vaccine to distribute to general practice surgeries and pharmacies. So it's got to go in liquid nitrogen. And if you break that cold chain, the vaccine becomes inactivated, whereas normal vaccines just go in the fridge. Wow. And this is a real problem with uh, some of these advanced vaccines is the cold chain.
4: Now, Norman, you've spoken about this before, how there just won't be one vaccine like when you go to get the polio vaccine or, or other sort of immunisations we've had, there will be a range of them. There'll be first-generation ones and second-generation ones. So where does this one fit? How does it differ from, I guess, the other one Australia's banked on, which is the AstraZeneca Oxford one? Do they work the same?
3: The answer is yes, no. Uh, but it's a very they're very different technologies. So what they're both doing is that they're taking a message, a genetic message into the cell to sell our cells, to manufacture... A bit of that spike, you know, you know the spikes around the coronavirus? Those are the spikes that lock the virus into the into our bodies. That's what the vaccines are generating antibodies to. But instead of injecting the coronavirus, they're injecting a genetic message into our cells and telling the cells to produce the part of the spike protein that then will be, that will leave the cell, go into the bloodstream, and the immune system will say, aha that proteins around and they form an immune reaction to it. So that's what they both do, but they do it in very different ways.
0: All right, Norman, great to, I guess, get a little bit of that cold shower on the news that um, a lot of people are getting excited about. There's so much detail to it and very interesting to hear about the, I guess, the marketing dimension to this whole rollout as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the briefing. We really appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. That was Dr. Norman Swan from ABC Radio National there. And Annika, it was a bit of a bit of a downer, wasn't
4: it? Yeah, look, that's not the news we want to hear, is it, Tom? Look, Norman has taken a pretty cautious approach throughout this whole pandemic, and you can understand why. We've, it was pretty scary there for a while. But look, I've got my fingers crossed that this is the good news we all need. What about you, Tom?
0: Yeah, I think so. I don't think um, a huge company like this would put out this information to the market if they weren't going to really stand behind it. And I also like what Norman Swan said about the other vaccines also being quite close. So I think there's way more good news and bad news in this episode.
4: It's nearly over.
0: Tomorrow on The Briefing, we'll go deeper on the Pfizer vaccine again. And we're going to find out how news of this vaccine will change the global response to the pandemic and start to create that pathway back to normal life.